I've been wanting to speak to you for a little while. Um, your name is synonymous with Bigfoot in the USA. Okay. It's it, at least to persons like myself, you know, fanboys who've taken the genre too seriously and, and gotten involved. I just want to pick your brain, you know, find out what happened. How did you get into it uh, to begin with? What, what was the origin story of Daniel Perez and how did how did Bigfoot take over your life? Uh, to begin with, when I got interested, it was by way of uh, a movie at the theater, at the walk-in theater. It was called The Legend of Boggy Creek. Yeah. And just about everyone is, well, I think many people that are involved in Bigfooting have seen this movie. And so that was about 1973. And uh, I was with my older brother and my older sister. And in 1973, I was about 10 years old. Mm -hmm. And the movie had a profound impact on me. It was like uh, a ton of bricks being thrown at me. And uh, there was a part of me, young Daniel Perez, that I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that these people that were making this documentary film or quotes around that uh, were presenting reality that this was really happening that there was a boogeyman in the mm. state of arkansas in the united states and uh but so i saw the movie and i went home and then probably within a couple of weeks i realized i had a library card and so i went to the library when people did those things and i checked out some books somehow i must have made the connection between boggy creek and bigfoot Mm -hmm. And I checked out some books on Bigfoot, and uh, that's kind of how I got started. And it just kind of back then the subject was uh, kind of new to a lot of people. It was kind of in terms of library offerings, in terms of books, there weren't a whole lot. And so I checked out a few books, like the children's books on the subject matter, and I think I remember reading uh, Marion places on the track of Bigfoot mm. was one of, I think, my first books that I devoured. And it was talking about Bigfoot in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. And it just kind of sucked me in even more. And again, I was a little bit, how can you say it? I was a little bit skeptical in the sense that I was asking myself, is this really happening? Are these people really from all walks of life, having sightings of these hairy man-like creatures that live in the woods. It, even today in 2023, it mm -hmm. seems like a fantastic possibility. But back then in the mid seventies, it just seemed otherworldly. And so, but that's how I got going on Bigfooting. And I'm 59 today and I didn't think that had you asked me back then, would I have stuck with it from age 10 to age mm. 59? I don't know if I would have had an answer. I don't know if I could have answered that question, but it's uh. one thing led to another. And so that's how I kept going. And uh, so, and just last month, we celebrated 25 years of publishing a physical paper newsletter called the Bigfoot Times that goes worldwide. Yeah. 
And uh, had you asked me 25 years ago, uh, 25 years ago, no one knew that the impact, the digital environment, the internet, social media would have on paper publishing, such mm -hmm. as newspapers, especially newspapers, have what effect it would have because nobody knew it was all brand new. But in that time span, those 25, that two and a half decades, all the publications that were print publications on Bigfoot in terms of newsletters, they all disappeared. They went extinct. Mm -hmm. And the newsletter survived. So Wonderful. And I'm a survivor of it. And so uh, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just delighted. You're a digital I'm survivor. A digital survivor. Well, it's amazing. It's, uh, I've only just signed up for it today, and uh, as, as you know, and it was it was just one of those things was so implicitly existing there in the background to me until we spoke. I didn't even realize I'd never really got it. I was like, well, how come I don't have that? I've got everything else. And I've, you know, I've clearly read tons of snippets from it over the years. They've floated about on the internet, especially. And um, I just thought, oh my goodness, yeah, of course. Now, talking about 25 years, 25 years is such a long time when you're not 25, but 25 years is really a short period of time. You know, we can get through that 25 years very quickly, can't we? And that's something I've, I've even noticed myself. And uh, But it is astonishing, you know, to find yourself there still publishing this paper. And that, because you've got that that long view of this subject, I know you talked about this in your recent newsletter as well, this this long view of the subject. You can see how things have changed over the years, how the conversation has grown and changed. And I'd be very interested to know what your takeaway from that is. How has um, the cult of Bigfoot that we have now with the conferences and myriads of groups, everything from world believers and paranormalists to you know, hidden apes to surviving um, primitive man advocates. And how has it changed for you in that time from when you first started getting your your books post uh, Beast of Boggy Creek to, to now? Well, for me personally, nothing has changed. For the people involved in Bigfooting outside of myself, perhaps a lot has changed. I see it the same way I saw it probably 25 years ago, two and a half decades ago, is this we're looking at or investigating and researching an extremely rare primate in North America, such as a wolverine. And most people in North America have never seen a wolverine with their own eyes, but they do in fact exist. And so I guess with the cult of Bigfoot and the conferences and the people, I think part of it is a social dynamic, is that mm. people get together at these conferences. They have nothing to do with Bigfoot, but it's a social interaction that kind of revs them up. And I said, well, if it's all a friendship thing, then that's a great thing to have these yeah. conferences so people can get together. Community. But mind you that there's not one conference ever in the history history of Bigfoot conferences that is going to solve the Bigfoot mystery. What is going to solve the Bigfoot mystery is that someone brings in hard, physical, incontestable evidence. Mm. And that's what 
both the skeptics, the doubters, the believers, and the researchers uh, need to complete this equation. Because you've got the two, you, you've got the equation two plus three equals, mm -hmm. and say for instance nobody knew, we just need to bring that five into the equation mm -hmm. to settle the question. But it I, hasn't I, I, happened yet. Oh, and I, I think that's, that's a very sensible outlook on it. Talking about things, uh, things such as evidence and essentially a body, or at least a, um, evidence of a physical creature, somebody posed the question the other day, and I reposted it, are you pro-kill or no-kill? Uh, to which I answered that entirely depends upon the situation. Flippantly, now, what's your, what's your take on, on what we would or should be prepared to do to prove the existence of the species? Well, let's just put it this way, that in recent years, science has introduced this thing called eDNA, environmental DNA. And outside of environmental DNA, you take it a step back, and what's been collected for many, many years or many decades here in North America is alleged hair samples of Bigfoot. So that's physical from the subject itself. And so there have been positive results in the sense that some of the hairs that have been studied have come back completely unclassified. They can't match them to anything, but they said, well, it, it resembles a gorilla or it resembles a man. But just looking at a strand of hair under a microscope or publishing it in a respected journal, that is not evocative. It's not provocative. I don't think that's going to be the go juice that's going to sell the scientific community saying that this strand of hair proves that Bigfoot is real. Yeah. I don't. I think you're going to need a hell of a lot more horsepower to to make the case. And when I say that, I mean that either a substantial piece of a body or the body mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. So getting back to that question, am I in the camp of pro-kill, no-kill? In a way, it's an irrelevant question because if you look at people who poach deer in North America mm -hmm. without a hunting tag license, they don't care whether it's deer hunting season or not. They'll go out and kill one. <laughs> So the same thing can be applied to Bigfoot. It's just like whether there's a season for killing a Bigfoot or not, it's irrelevant to them because they're going to go out mm. and do what they want to do. Yeah. So having a scholarly argument on that subject to me is just a waste of breath because it's not going to make any difference to say a hunter in Canada who wants to go out and kill one uh -huh. or the the poet in Southern California or who says that, oh no, we should we should protect them and blah, blah, blah. Uh, it doesn't stop the guy in Canada okay. who's a bloodthirsty killer and wants to go yeah. get one. But as we can see, even in the first month of 2023, no one has actually done that. Mm. And so uh, it's kind of an irrelevant question. I mean, on that subject, actually, of of Bigfoot evidence, of course, we have the very famous Patterson Gimlet footage, which I won't drag you into today, but, you know, everybody talks about that. And uh, Bob Gimlin is still around talking about his sighting and doing the conferences and you know, being a good advocate for that. And I, I remember seeing in 2018 Jeff Meldrum's 
presentation on I think it was then the 51st anniversary I can't remember um and oh, he uh, well, he actually presented then that evidence uh, I think it was his his film was based upon the original cut I think he got from the widow and he mentioned at that time any this is you know hotly disputed evidence and yet it can't be disproven any evidence that's any less than this from a photographic uh, from a filmographic point of view is no evidence at all I, I wonder what you thought about that because of course we're there's been a long time a long time has passed since that evidence we've never really captured anything as clear since you know excepting perhaps the Todd standing footage but of course is is very hotly disputed and and most researchers don't take as being genuine anyway what are your thoughts on on that that gap and oh, we have been able to to get our hands on well, some valuable evidence since it's been over 50 years since mm. Roger Patterson acquired that film or shot that film. And to date, no one has come close or even remotely close in acquiring that type of evidence. So what Jeff said, Dr. Jeff Meldrum said in 2017, October of 2017 would mark the 50th anniversary of the film mm. is absolutely correct in the sense that anything less than the PG film, as I call it, Patterson-Gimlin, anything less than the PG film in terms of visual clarity uh, should not be accepted as evidence because what you see there is shot in broad daylight and there's no trick of the camera or anything like that. And for me, having researched and investigated the film, both at the film site and all the circumstantial data that surrounds the film, there's no question in my mind that what you see on that piece of film that is comprised of about 954 frames of frames in the whole film depicts a living, breathing Bigfoot. And I understand it's, it's very hard for a lot of people that are skeptical to wrap their head around that concept. And it's just like, uh, when I first saw the film presented on TV or an advertisement, I want to say it was probably the mid-1970s, mm -hmm. I really got close up to the TV just to kind of see better, uh, to see like, wow, is this really what I think it is? And as I got to... As I became more smarter about the film with more information, it was very clear that, yes, this is what it depicts. This this mm. is a Bigfoot. And uh, one thing I'll point out that recently in Skeptical Inquirer, and I'll get to Todd Standing in a minute too, they wrote a two-piece article that Ben Radford had authored. Oh, yeah. And he talked about duplicity being able to duplicate it as an experiment to prove that it's either real or not real mm. so like if i take a cup of water and put it in the freezer and i said look i have i can freeze this water and make it into a solid form so then you that would be your experiment you would mm. have to take a cup of water and do the same thing and put it in the freezer and say like, my goodness, 
I've duplicated his experiment and therefore what he's done must be true. And so, but if you go back, if you go back uh, to Ben Radford and his article, it's kind of, it's kind of a funny article because I don't think it's really strong journalism or strong writing to begin with, but he had gotten in touch with me and it states in the footnotes of that article that he was in touch with me. But I told him you had to do like for like, and I said that actually was done, and I believe it was in October of 1982 mm. by the late cryptozoologist Eric Beckford. Mm. He took a Kodak K100 movie camera fitted with 16 millimeter Kodachrome film down to the same film site, and he took with him a man with a gorilla costume to try to duplicate the film. Now, I've never seen this piece of footage, mm -hmm. but a colleague of mine who's since passed on, Warren Thompson from Redwood City, California, did see this film. And he told me, in summary, it was like night and day compared mm -hmm. to the PG film. And so that just tells you right there that uh, trying to duplicate it with a man in a gorilla costume, that they fell short tremendously. And that, that, in fact, is an apples-to-apples apples comparison because mm. you're taking the same type of camera, the same type of film, at the film site, not in a laboratory, and trying to duplicate the film, and they fell short. And wow. I pointed this out to Ben Radford for the Skeptical Inquirer article, but never did it find its way into print. That so seems I, to be... I just kind of figured that when the information that I'm telling people is not comfortable to them, mm. they just ignore it. And that's fine with me. All I can do is do my best to convey yeah. the information and the data. I mean, I, I guess it, it, that, I'm guessing in that particular case from Mr. Ranford's article, it wasn't pertinent to his, um, um, to his theory. And it, that's why it was excluded. Now, my wife had a funny uh, instance. She had a, a uh, medical issue, skin issue, years and years ago, and she went to see a skin specialist. And um, after about an hour of going through all of her symptoms, the specialist got really mad with her and said, "Look, uh, you know, um, this just isn't right." And she said, "What's wrong?" She said, "Well, your symptoms don't fit the disease I think you have." And of course, she didn't have that disease, but the specialist had decided <laughs> that she did, and everything within the consultation. Had to, and you could, there was a, a classic example of an intelligent person who'd formed the theory and was trying to prove it by forcibly fitting these, these conditions into that, that diagnosis. And I think that's the same with skeptics sometimes. And also with believers, we try to you know, awkwardly fit our philosophy, usually a philosophy that pertains right. to our, our life view, our paradigm view on life, whether it's religious or scientific or, or other, um, wow. into, into what we see. And Bigfoot seems to suffer from this a lot. So you know, what do you think is, is the answer to that? You know, getting away from our subjective uh, perceptions and realities to, to find the truth of this subject? Well, I'm not exactly certain what you're getting at, but I think it's sometimes like trying to take a square peg and jam it into a circle. Exactly. And it just, 
it's just never going to fit, period. Yeah. I don't care what, which way you turn it, that square peg is never going to go into the circle because it doesn't fit to begin with. And people will try to jam it in there and do whatever they need to do to make it happen. And I think that's the problem with the skeptics and the doubters is they're fighting a losing cause. And it's just like, there's no law in anthropology or paleoanthropology mm -hmm. that states that under, uh, unknown primates could still be living to this day. There's not one thing in the literature that states that this is an impossibility from the Yeti to the mm -hmm. Yowie in Australia to the Bigfoot in North America that states that this cannot be happening. The eyewitnesses, on the other hand, in those four areas of the, of the planet are saying that this is what we saw and take it or leave it. And uh, I'm not backing down from my testimony. I mean, mm -hmm. typical testimony is like, we were driving late at night in a road through the forest and this hairy bipedal creature ran in front of our headlights from one side to the other. That's the most typical sighting. Mm -hmm. And that's what the witnesses report. And it's the investigators and researchers who are following up, trying to find out who's making these tracks or who is responsible for these sightings. Mm -hmm. And the most logical answer is Bigfoot. And if, if you think beyond that, that it's rare, the numbers are low, it's nocturnal, it's very strong in the sense I bring that up because it wouldn't have any natural enemies. That would be a perfect equation to say like, this is probably part of the reason why they are so successful. Mm. And I guess I failed to mention that they have the ability to see at night very well. Mm. Like you and I, we can see at night, but not like an animal who's nocturnal. Mm. Our vision is okay at night, but if it gets pitch black, we're probably going to we're going probably going to bump into things. But these things seem to be doing quite well, and so you add up those ingredients, and that's a perfect brew for success and survival mm. into 2023. And if you look at North America, just the landmass and just the forest coverage, there's plenty of spots out there to be to remain hidden. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Now, I wanted to address because you had mentioned Todd Standing. Yes. And Todd, he, he's throughout the years, he's presented a lot of colorful information. Mm -hmm. And they've dissected a lot of it, his images of the Bigfoot behind the tree. And I don't think it's. Let's just put it this way. I don't have confidence in it. Mm hmm. And if he wants to continue to produce this type of information, I said more power to him, but don't bother me because I don't think that's a good use of time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's interesting. Uh, uh, a friend of the family was head of VFX for the Hobbit movies, and I gave the documentary to her as she ran a, a special effects department, a very 
you know, very, very huge movies that used a lot of special effects. And she looked at him. Um, she's got no interest in Bigfoot whatsoever. I said, just look at this information. Tell me, could this be, could somebody fake this? Could somebody do this and, and make it look as real as it looks in some cases? And she looked at specifically uh, the main ones in the movie, the uh, Blinky, as it's named, the juvenile Sasquatch, the Teddy Squatch, this kind of blonde, mostly blonde Sasquatch that's moving very slowly when he allegedly got lost out in the wilderness. And then the very final one when he did the documentary with uh, Jeff Meldrum that uh, appeared after everybody had left the scene and seemed to just have some kind of black makeup on its, on, on its face. And she looked at all three and she did say, look, you know, whoever has done the first two, if they are fake, has, has got some real makeup skills, especially with Blinky. You know, the, the, the fur is going right over the eyelid there. So whoever wore that prosthetic and those full contact lenses was very uncomfortable for a long time. But this would be very easy to do. In fact, the heads move very, very little, if, if at all. And her opinion was that you know, it could very well be fabricated, but they were good fakes from a, a props point of view. As he also pointed out then in regards to the third Sasquatch, the devil Squatch, as it's related to looking through these, I don't know if you saw the documentary, this little gap in the wood with just a blackout face, seemed to have been done by a different crew altogether. And of course, there's 10 years between them. And I did wonder then, are we looking at something that was done quite well at the beginning? And, you know, after 10 years of slogging away to try to get the documentary going, you don't really have the same talent to complete it. For your final sighting, is this what we're looking at? And, and you know, I, I think your um, your take on it is very revealing. That you don't really have time to to give to it in that case. And you know, that's a shame that people out there do that. But I would suppose that they think there is some financial incentive in well, completing I, that kind I of one. I suspect Todd. I suspect Todd Standing will produce more of the same in the future. Oh, really? uh -huh. And that's that's your first warning sign or your first <laughs> red flag to, to, to move on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I call it snake oil. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just like when he first came onto the scene, uh, John Green's daughter, who was grown at the time, I think they had shown a video or we're going to show a video in a province outside of British Columbia in a, in a eastern province. And she went to go see it and called her dad. And she says, uh, don't bother. It's all fake. <laughs> and so that's when John Green, the late John Green, yeah. uh, Bigfooter, kind of uh, moved on from Todd Standing. Okay. And I, I think he even went by a different name back then. But oh, I don't really? know because I don't pay a whole lot of attention to it. Because, okay. it's, again, it's just like I don't consider it a good use of time. Okay. And, you know. I would say the same thing to people who are trying to invest in crypto. And I think yeah. <laughs> you know, you've seen what happened with crypto just recently. Oh, yeah. And I, I, said that, yeah. I said, I tell people on my Facebook page, I said, the only crypto you should be dealing yeah. with is cryptozoology. Exactly. <laughs> well, me and my wife had the same conversation. And I said, look, if um, when, when there's spare money, we'll buy assets. I'm not using my real money to buy air, fake electronic air. You know, I want I want to spend on real physical things that are worth something um, that I can sell later. Um, moving on from Todd, I I 
wrote a book recently um, and looking at different types of hairy humanoids, I call them, because there's some ambiguity for some of the types around the world. But in the case of Bigfoot-like creatures, there are many other types listed around the world. The Yarin, the Yowie, there's apparently a, a, a European version, the Woodwows, and, and so on and so forth, the Almas, the Almasti. Do you think that these are varying species, varying types of one species? For instance, you know, we have um, various kinds of bears, polar bears, black bears, grizzly bears, but they're all definitively bears. Do you think we're looking at that with these hairy humanoids around the world, or are there several species perhaps that are uh, closely related? Uh, my guess is that we are probably look, looking at, and it's a hard stretch, mm. especially coming from someone who's not part of academia. Mm -hmm. I earned my living as a union licensed electrician. Okay. So I'm I'm a college dropout, and so. For me to be saying these things, it's just like, all I can say is that I've been at it for decade upon decade. I have the largest private library on the subject, the largest physical files on the subject. Wow. And so I have an informed opinion. I would suspect we might be looking at perhaps mm -hmm. at least six different individual primate species wow. that inhabit the world. From say the Yeti to the mm. to the Almas in the Caucasus to the uh, Yowie in Australia to the Orang Pendek mm. uh, to Bigfoot here in North America. And as I explained, I, I did a History Channel interview, and in fact that was a week ago, I believe. Uh -huh. A week ago, I was down in Hollywood to do that taping, but. Uh, I think I explained, let's see, I, I've lost my thought. We were talking about the different species. The different types, It wouldn't yeah. surprise me that we have at least six different ones. And then as I explained to them, I said it wouldn't surprise me that we have a variant of Bigfoot, maybe a subspecies mm. from the Pacific Northwest down to Florida. Because what's being seen in Florida usually is a little bit smaller, a little bit different than mm -hmm. your typical run-of-the-mill Bigfoot. So having a subspecies would not surprise me the least bit on the premise that you're dealing with a real primate. No, I mean, that makes sense to me when I was researching this book anyway and, and looking through all of the, uh, the the big players in the genre and especially the types that are listed around the world that physically speaking, they just seem to be uh classes and differences between them even physiologically and especially in in size and appearance and that was it was interesting um to find that out because i always thought of bigfoot as one thing one type of animal that existed wherever it existed the yaoi was probably the same as the sasquatch and so on and so forth that was my original thought people writing this book and let's um let's talk about field research tips and techniques because People out there, a lot of laymen, a lot of citizen scientists are out there these days looking for Bigfoot. And one of the things that used to uh, happen here a lot is you get all of these different pictures of stick formations and little stick lifts and bent um, arches or trees that have fallen into an X shape. And, and suddenly you know, that appears on somebody's Facebook page as, as a Bigfoot or signs of 
Bigfoot activity. Um, what are your tips and techniques for researching in the field? And what do you think are the primary signs that people should be looking for? Well, number one, when you go out in the woods, I would suggest to be safe, go with someone else. Don't go by yourself because mm. you can get lost in the woods quite easily or something could happen and you could go up missing and be the subject of one of David Polite's missing 411 yeah. books. Sure. Uh, but yeah, I would suggest going with someone else. I would say, as Renee Hinden used to say, the, the Canadian Bigfooter, mm-hmm. is you want to carry your camera uh, with you at all times. And when I say that, I mean, if you're using the porty pod, porta potty or having to relieve yourself somewhere, that you still have your camera around your waist or you have your uh, your camera phone in your pocket, mm-hmm. not on a rock 10 feet away, because <laughs> that could be when something happens. So I would say always have your camera with you. Take a, a small notebook that if you do find anything, rather than try to remember it, that you could actually record, this is what I found in terms of a footprint, and you, you've got mm-hmm. something to record with, something, documentation. A lot of older cases have escaped documentation. So I would say the two things that are important, have your camera, have paper and pen so you can mm. document what's happening. So that's that's my best piece of advice. All the twisted branches in the woods and all the, the, the stick formations, I don't know what to make of it. I would say that if you actually see a Bigfoot doing this type of behavior, then maybe this is what they do. But if you're just finding that, say, a teepee structure, who knows, maybe some kids came out and decided to to, to just use their pent-up energy mm. to build something. So I don't know, and but it's just like, if you, in the situation with Glenn Thomas, a very famous case in, the United States in, in the Estacada area of Oregon State in 1967, he claimed that he observed uh, a couple of Sasquatch digging for rodents mm. and piling up these rocks. And so he actually saw the rocks being piled up. But if you were to just see rocks piled up somewhere, that doesn't mean you've got Bigfoot. In the case with the late Glenn Thomas, he actually observed this behavior where he saw these things actually piling up rocks looking for food. So in that situation, you could tie the rock piling with a Bigfoot. So if if someone were to actually see a Bigfoot doing some uh, things with busting down trees and making structures, then I would say, okay, there's the case. But I've yet to hear any eyewitness by name who can actually claim that where you could cross-examine him and say like, okay, tell us what you've experienced. Mm-hmm. So that's now, the what, difference, <clears throat> I would say. Absolutely. And, and it's become a bit of a feed bill, I think, within the community. Um, because yeah, one of the things you will find if you're in the woods is sticks and sticks and trees fall into all kinds of shapes and kids go out bushcrafting. That's very popular here at the moment to make little teepees and shelters and the rest with bits of sticks. Scouts do it a lot. 
Um, we also have well, a. I I got to stop you for a moment. It was a few years ago. I want to say it was the last time I was in at the Patterson Gimlin film site with my uh -huh. colleagues for the Bluff Creek project. Uh, we went down there, and there was a journalist from the East Coast who was writing a book on the subject. Uh -huh. But it had rained. It was very clear that it had rained there pretty heavy. And some old skinny trees, because of the, 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 the drainage of the water, mm -hmm. had kind of uh, did away with their root system in the sense of the dirt that holds the roots. Mm -hmm. And these trees kind of collapsed on themselves like a teepee structure. Uh -huh. And it was very clear this was this was the force of nature. Uh -huh. And I told the, the 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 author, the guy who's writing the book, I said, had we not seen this and ha had I not explained this to you, mm. some other would be Bigfooters would come here and say that, oh look, a Bigfoot <laughs> has made a teepee structure right here at the Patterson yeah. Inland film site. Yeah. When if you really start to look at it. Mm -hmm. The trees did seem like they formed like a teepee structure. Yeah. And but you could look around and you could see that there was the root system, all the water mm -hmm. from the dirt uh, had flowed in this area and just made them collapse and some died and they just seemed like they were in a teepee formation. But this was all natural. It was had nothing to do with a Bigfoot. And so I think a lot of people they see this type of stuff out in the woods and their imagination runs wild well it's also it's a win if you're out there i think it's a win oh look what i found look what i found and um you know at one point i was uh, my nickname for us was was wicker people we were wicker people because we were looking for sticks and formations everywhere every page on the internet was full of these wicker formations um these sticks and, and stones that are piled up all over the place and there's another uh, trend, I don't know if it's taking the hold in the US as well, where young people go into the woods or into beaches, and they pile up rocks, make a little tower as a sort of monument that they were there. And sometimes they're very high and people have, I've seen those posted on pages as well. And one of the questions I asked was, did you look below this teepee structure for heavy indentations where the creature stood? There should be footprints, right? <laughs> or any stray hairs? or right. anything like that because essentially a possible 400 pound plus creature has stood there and made a teepee with heavy um branches and and tree trunks and yet there's no evidence that it even stood there and it, people, nobody even thinks about it so i think yeah one of those things um going on from that you mentioned that uh, it's you know obviously as avid a researcher and fan as you are it's it's not your your main role in life, you have a job, normal job like most of us. Um, how do you navigate the working world with this interest? Is it something that you share with your colleagues or are they none the wiser that you are Daniel Perez of the Bigfoot Times? Most people do not know uh -huh. that at, in the workplace, what I do on my own time. And I don't really bring it up for the very reason you have some very definitive opinions they, they saw, oh they said people will tell me I saw something on TV that Ray Wallace uh, confessed that he was the Bigfoot yeah. or he had made all the tracks well Ray Wallace died I think in 2002 and the tracks are still showing up mm -hmm. so go figure yeah so we have at work 
the people who do know a little bit about the subject, they have these very, these opinions where that the case is closed, uh, there's no need to look or, you know, I just generally don't bring it up. I bring it up because there's, in my own time with my own newsletter, yeah. with people who are interested in the subject, uh, because there's there's an audience that I think that's intelligent, that wants to read about it, wants to read and study uh, and know things a little more in detail rather than the superficial, I, I'm Ray Wallace and I left all the wood, I made wood stompers and left all the Bigfoot tracks in Northern mm-hmm. California and I started the mystery, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that's, that may have been good for one incident. But yeah. it, after he passed away, it's just like, well, then how do you explain all the tracks since that time? Oh, he's got or like a whole Sunday. bunch of protégés out there, right? Trained up in secret. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I generally yeah. don't I don't bring it up at, at work. I just bring it up on yeah. my own personal time, like I'm doing with you. And well, exactly. Consequently, exactly. there's an audience there of people who are hungry for this information. So mm-hmm. I said, focus on the people that are interested in the subject matter and realize that as far as I'm concerned, this is one of the biggest scientific questions on the Mm. planet. Do we, you and I are humans, homo sapiens. And it's just like, is homo sapiens the only example of Mm. this primate on the planet or is there more out there that Mm. we are mostly unaware of? And so that is a real question. I think it, it's a and it's a very it's a beautiful question in the way because it gives hope to us that there is more to be discovered and what a lot of people I think don't realize especially about the USA is just the sheer amount of unpeopled untenanted land that there is in forest unexplored forest in your part of the world I had this a uh, it's an awe-inspiring experience when I landed at Atlanta Airport one time and I just looked out into this forest that was stretching out as far as the eye could see and I said to somebody on the plane in America oh, what's that forest called oh, no, I don't know that's nothing that's just some forest but from my British perspective it was endless and yet it was just a scrap of land in his view and I thought I'm sure that bit of forest hasn't been thoroughly explored and when you get to the Pacific Northwest and uh, there's planes that have gone missing, jumbo jets, they've never found them. That's the kind of forest we're looking at. I think once people can have a concept of that, and especially a concept of how most countries exist in population centers, a lot of the US is, is untenanted, isn't it? It's, it's open land. You know, how can we, well, once they get a concept of that, they can suddenly at least perceive of the fact that something like Bigfoot has the opportunity to survive undetected, especially if it's in smaller numbers. Um, just before we, we finish, I, I think you know it's it's important to think about the future of Bigfoot. You know, what is the type of evidence we've talked about this already that we need uh, to to conclude that this species is a real species, and and do you think we're looking at a future in which Bigfoot is discovered? Yeah. And I think one of the these uh, night scopes that most of the Bigfooters are using, uh, I think that's a game changer in the sense that 
if you continue to do it, that you're probably going to have success in finding something because that kind of levels the playing field in the sense that it allows a person to quote unquote see in the dark, see in the <laughs> night. And when you have that opportunity, uh, again, it levels the playing field is that you're able to see almost as good as whatever is out there that's probably looking at you. <laughs> and so that's a big, to me, and it's just, I think it just has to be utilized more, but even even still, I think it was in 2012, Stacy Brown Jr. and Sr., who's now passed away in Florida, got thermal video of a Bigfoot, and that was very compelling as far as I'm concerned. I know just maybe two, maybe last year, early last year, they got some interesting thermal video from Australia. And again, that was no time. Mm. And so I think that's quite interesting having those thermal devices where you could see at night. Uh, it would might be a game changer. And so I think it's inevitable in the future, I don't know when, that we might see a real answer to the question. Mm. No, absolutely. That um, Australian footage was remarkable as well. But then the, the Yowie Hunters team, I think that Dean Harrison and some of those other guys they're just doing amazing work at the at the yaoi sightings seem to be so prolific at least i mean the descriptive and they're, they're delivered in that matter of fact australian style by the witnesses where there's no flowery it was a dark night kind of details they just jump straight into how the creature looked and what it did and i, I think some really great descriptors there um Let's just let people know where they can get the Bigfoot Times before you go and how they can support support the work and, and keep everything going. Well, if you're interested in a physical paper publication that's mailed worldwide, uh, just go to BigfootTimes.net, which is the name of the website. And like I said, we're not going anywhere. We've been doing this for over two and a half decades, 25 years. We've just celebrated with the December issue, the 25th anniversary of the newsletter. And so now we're going into the next 25 years. And so I'm actually working on the January issue right now. So that'll be mailed out to the readership quite soon at bigfoottimes.net. And there you could sign up uh, either for, if you're in the United States or worldwide. Amazing, amazing. And I've just signed up as well myself, and it's, it's next to nothing. It's basically, they're basically asking for next to no money for an awesome newsletter, which uh, covers every single aspect of Bigfoot and that there is. Yeah, and so what I'm doing with the newsletter now is uh, all the previous newsletters, the cover of the newsletters are being posted to the website so everyone can see every newsletter that's ever been been published the cover mm. of it. And so that's my latest project. And the other project I have going is making the largest compilation of all Bigfoot books in the world. And yeah, now we're yeah. a little over a thousand. And you could visit all those books on BigfootTimes.net too. It's called Project Bigfoot Books. Wow. Wow. Every single Bigfoot book that's ever been published, whether it's a major publisher or self-published fiction or Nonfiction, it's all there. And if it isn't there, we're looking for it to try to list it. Because 
no one has ever embarked on this type of activity, so I decided to give it a go. Amazing, amazing. Do you do you read them all? I don't have time to read them. No, all. don't. Fact, I have I have uh, just recently I think yeah. four books that have sent been sent to me for review. Yeah. And so I try to read when I have time. So I I still review them, but since I've seen so much of the Bigfoot yeah. literature. I try to go read what I, I'm not familiar with. Mm, the stuff yeah, that absolutely. seems to be uh, already covered in other books, I kind of skip over it. Yeah. yeah. Well, of course, of course, I guess in, in that sense, you you know what's coming. You already know what's coming. Like the PG film, all the different bits and pieces, you know, it's it's um it's all said and done. Daniel, I just want to thank you so much for coming on. It's It's been eye-opening. I've wanted to talk to you for forever. And uh, yeah, I'm, it's like a, just, a bucket list moment. Thank you so much. I'm just happy that you know who I am. Yeah. yeah I, I, guess, I guess in the world of Bigfoot, a lot of people must know who I am. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's good to be uh, anonymous in the world and um, and well known in this wonderful world, which has a, a tremendous community. Uh, thank you so much. And again, everybody had to grab the newsletter catch up on what's going on. There, there really is so much wonderful material to dive into. Thanks, thanks so much. Okay, very good.